Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Vasey View. So I've been doing a European tour. I've been to France. I've been to Estonia. I've been to Holland. I've got as far as Israel, which is stretching the definition a bit. And now I'm actually in Ghana, but I'm going to be talking to my next guest, Izzy Obe, who's currently in Ghana, uh, but mainly about uh, UK issues. And what I want to focus on in this podcast is the whole issue of diversity, which is something I got very involved in when I was a minister, looking at the world of film and television and the arts and trying to promote much greater diversity, both on and off screen and on and off stage. But I have to say, holding my hands up, that I did very little or next to nothing in the world of tech. Uh, but over the last few months, understandably, uh, the lack of diversity in the world of tech has come strongly into focus with, I think, statistics showing that something like uh, 1% of venture capital funding goes to founders who are people of colour uh, and 89%, guess what, goes to basically white men. So my next guest, Izzy Obeng, who is currently in Ghana, is working hard to change all this. She's the founder and director of Foundervine, an inclusive enterprise community which develops early stage entrepreneurs. And she started her career at KPMG, the professional services firm, where she worked as a management consultant. And she delivered transformation projects for some of the world's largest brands. But she founded Founder Vine and then holds an enterprise advisory role in the University of London and she manages an incubator program there and administers grant funding to student-led businesses. She's a passionate diversity campaigner. She's committed to small, supporting small business creation across the UK and Africa and um, she's quite a big name in this whole debate which is why I wanted her on as a guest. So welcome Izzy. Hello, thank you for having me. I hope that's a fair introduction. <laughs> yes, it was a fantastic career so far. Thank you. <laughs> but I've, uh, it's a long introduction and I've prevented you from speaking. So tell us uh, the story in your own words. Tell us how you came to found Foundervine and what you want to do with this organisation. Yeah, sure. So um, I grew up in a part of London where there weren't an amazing amount of role models around me who were of working in business or working in technology and I saw a lot of young people um, that I knew and that I spent time with going down paths that uh, let's say were less than desirable um, because they lacked the opportunity. Um, they lacked uh, the kind of support and the ecosystem they needed to realise that they could um, just like other people contribute to uh, you know the future of our economy and increasingly digital economy that needed different types of skills. Um, I always knew that I wanted to do something uh, to help people find those opportunities. And at first I thought that that was going into politics, um, but quickly realized that I could um, have more impact in business. Um, so, so Yeah, so, so much that we could be doing as industry to kind of help build the pipeline of young people into technology. And um, I started my career at KPMG where I met lots of young people who were considering careers in the sector and who couldn't quite work it out. Um, and so Foundervine came about from the need that um, I saw to support people who were at idea stage and who were pre-idea stage even, who just needed a bit of advice, a bit of a guidance to 
take their ideas to the next level. So that's kind of how we started. And like many entrepreneurs, you kind of, I mean, what I so admire about entrepreneurs is that you kind of jumped in. The thing that's always held me back from being an entrepreneur is I always want to get that extra bit of experience. But you were quite young in terms of just jumping in and saying, I'm going to help people uh, from different backgrounds build their businesses. Yeah, so I, th I think there's um, this thing, particularly if you are, uh, you know, quite high achieving as a person, there's this kind of idea that you have to learn lots of things and get all of this knowledge and make sure everything's perfect before you start something. Um, and I think the reality of starting a business is just to get something out there, even if it's a bit rubbish, get that feedback and start in a really lean way. So um, I was, uh, I think I was about sort of 24 or 25 when uh, Foundervine started, um, already had corporate experience under my belt and just knew that there was something missing in the ecosystem that I could do something in some small way about. And to bring it alive a bit, I read an interview with you where you said, I was absolutely fed up of going to startup events and being the only person of colour and one of very few women. I mean, what, what, what was that like? It was it was challenging. And I think for if you are from any kind of underrepresented, let's say, group, um, the, the challenges are similar regardless of the sector that you're going into. But there's something very particular about uh, the startup and the tech scene and that it's growing so fast, two and a half times faster than any sector in the UK. And there's something very um democratizing about tech in that you don't need specific qualifications to necessarily go into it you just need to be kind of sparky and bright and despite that despite how how uh, sort of flat the, the the hierarchy is and how easy in some ways it is to access we've still got a situation in which so much of this growth so much of this development is taking place on the doorsteps of diverse communities but without them actually having access to it and so it, it was frustrating, um, kind of there's this kind of tokenization that comes from being one of very few diverse voices maybe talking in this space. But at the time we were starting, you, you easily had events where the entire panel was male. Um, there were very few people in the audience from diverse communities. Um, and the stats show us that there is that talent out there. It's not a shortage of talent. It's just a shortage of access and opportunity to enter the space. So uh i want to jump in and go right to the heart of this but just uh one, one of the things i think it's important to talk about at, at the very beginning is kind of education opportunities i think one of the mm. things you identify is that uh you know people just don't have the same education opportunities and in fact we're talking about it a lot at the moment as we're recording this podcast in the uk because there's been a huge mess up over qualifications because people weren't able to sit exams and it's quite clear that Ironically, the algorithm used by the Department for Education has actually discriminated against people from more disadvantaged backgrounds. So mm. in terms of the barriers that people face, am I, is it fair to say that those barriers start at school? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And it's very it's very fascinating to kind of watch how a lot of the challenges around confidence and uh, access um, start so young and you know, uh, I had the sort of experience of both going through a sort of private school education briefly, but mostly state school. And you can see the 
stark difference just in terms of confidence um, that comes from young people who have parents who are willing to invest in their education and potentially lean in where their school is unable to. Um, and children growing up, growing up in schools where uh, the access to sort of uh, extracurricular education and the support you need in terms of enterprise and leadership and all those things are just not present. And um, as someone who's spent 18 months working in the higher education system, I can tell you that when it gets to when it gets to university level, it's so fragmented in terms of the additional support that young people get to prepare, prepare them for the uh, jobs and the opportunities of an economy that's changing so much. And if you are a student from um, a, a white working class background, the, the challenges are significant. If you are a black male student, for example, you are uh, you know, twice as likely, if not more, to drop out of university after your first year. We're seeing a real dearth in support for young people who are considering what an alternative career looks like and um, it's worrying and that's why Foundervine um, set up programs right from 11 years old uh, where we give young people in schools an opportunity to get an insight into enterprise and getting insight into working on projects right through to uh, you know 30 years plus where adults who are working and living in uh, communities that are maybe poorer and have less access to opportunity have the chance to get onto our programs and take those first steps into entrepreneurship or grow existing businesses as well. So I'd love you to talk a bit more about that actually because I find that fascinating. I'd love you to talk a bit about some of the examples of what you do with kids in schools and I'll also reveal my own kind of ignorance because for me I felt particularly when I was at university that university was the great leveler. I can understand the obstacle between school and university but I always assumed once you got to university everyone was kind of on a level playing field but you're saying that's not the case yes so it's it's there are definitely challenges in terms of outcomes and attainment for um, different groups when it comes to university level um, in terms of what we do so we realized quite quickly that we weren't going to achieve the kind of change that we wanted if we focused on helping entrepreneurs um, uh, build startups because you know by the time you've actually got a business model you've got a team together you've got all of these things you have done an immense amount of work already just to get to that point and um, you know in our heads we we're just being a bit lazy focusing on that segment and so we asked ourselves what is actually preventing this kind of pipeline of diverse founders growing what is actually um, a blocker towards getting more young people to even consider careers in enterprise or technology. We realise that when it comes to uh, when it comes to schools, we have an education system that, in many ways, just doesn't. It's not designed to equip young people for digital careers or for the kinds of jobs that we know we're going to need in the future. And so we run a program called Entrepreneur in a Day, which is just as it sounds, we go in for a day, we set um, a client challenge, we get professionals from industry to be mock clients, and we get school kids to essentially consult them for a day. And it's it's one day, but we've seen the impacts that has. We've run the programme for, um, for kids in care in Bedfordshire, we've run the programme for kids from disadvantaged backgrounds in East London, and the confidence you see in them pitching um, to, you know, professionals and we, we know that a lot of them just simply don't have access to that kind of additional support um, in the schools that they're 
they're in. Um, and then the kind of uh, progression that we want to see is that once you've taken part in something like Entrepreneur in a Day and you're at university now, you can take part in our Startup 54 programme, which is an idea stage programme where we get young people starting ideas from scratch in just 54 hours. And, and that's, a, business, that's, tar- that's targeted at what, what age group, the Startup 54? Yes, yeah, so it's targeted at 18 to 30-year-olds. Um, so right. we run the programme quite a bit within universities, but also in the wider community. And it's 54 hours? Yes. yes I'm, trying to, so I'm, trying to, I'm trying to do the maths. <laughs> I'm trying to do the maths to work out why it's 54 hours yeah, instead so of Startup 48 or Startup 24. It works out as <laughs> roughly 54 hours. Um, so it, so you, you join on a, a Friday evening um, oh, and you see. meet you meet 60 people for the first time um you work on a business model you work on a pitch deck and by sunday afternoon you're pitching an actual business to investors and experts and so it's very intense um but we've had such great feedback from the program i think we're on cohort 12 this weekend coming um, that's brilliant and yeah it's been it's been such a journey seeing we've had 73 businesses founded on the program um so far and startup 54 is supported by venture capital firms, corporates that make it happen, help you make it happen? Yes, so it's it's a mixture. So we, we uh, partner with universities directly to run the programmes. We've had a few cohorts with, um, last one was with the University of Hertfordshire, St Mary's University. Um, we also run the programme with corporate partners. Um, interestingly, quite a few of the kind of uh, sort of challenger banks and tech companies have been involved. So we had one with Monzo, for example, last year, um, and it's also funded by um, local government. Uh, so we have a series running at the moment with the London Borough of Lambeth, for example. Um, so, so different kinds of organisations. So basically, if you're a vice chancellor or a corporate listening to this, get in touch and see if you can do a startup fifty four. Absolutely, we'd love to speak. Yeah. <laughs> now let's. I want to dive into the heart of the problem. You know, I, I mentioned in my introduction the statistic that 1% of venture capital funding goes to people of colour. Yes. The one word that screams out to me when I look at this issue is networks. It seems to me that one of the biggest uh, obstacles to getting funding is simply being plugged into networks. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, it is. Uh, The lack of access to networks is one of the biggest challenges we see our uh, founders facing. And um, I say that in that so much of business comes from who you know. And we know that if you are a diverse founder, you are less likely to receive a warm introduction uh, to an investor. Um, And most investors will sort of take people forward based on warm introductions. Um, We know that when it comes to building client relationships in order for you to acquire customers, that takes you know going to industry events and being connected. And um, so often that can be out of reach for many founders. So a huge part of our work is hosting industry events and conferences. We have an annual conference called FounderFest where we bring together uh, investors, corporates, and people who want to start businesses or grow businesses. And we find that Um, they are crucial in terms of connecting people and COVID-19 has had a significant impact on our ability to do that and I know many organisations like ours are thinking is this a step back for diversity in that uh, we're not able to meet in person and shake hands Um, but we have been exploring what virtual 
conferences look like and how we can still connect people in these times. It's great to kind of address this problem of networks, but the other side of the coin, as it were, is that investors are missing out on massive opportunities by not kind of making the effort, if I can put it in sort of crude terms. Yeah. There's a whole demographic that simply is not being reached by investing in founders who know that demographic. Exactly. Exactly. There's there's a, a huge opportunity that's being missed and um, you know, brilliant organizations like Diversity V have looked into the um, you know, the 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 opportunity that's being missed in not investing in more diverse founders. And there's a big piece of um, you know, just uh, it's a big piece of work that the industry needs to do as a whole to look into um, unconscious bias um, and uh, the uh, sort of blind spots in the way that investment is done in the UK. Um, base of you know basing investment in founding teams based on kind of uh, leadership qualities and potential rather than where they went to school, where they work. Um, and you know the industry as a whole needs to be looking into that. There are a few that are doing really really well. Um, in terms of diversity centric um, investment and you know we are scouts for two funds at the moment who do exactly that uh, but there is a long way to go. Yeah so I was thinking about the kind of going back to my you know what can government do and what can vice chancellors do what can investors do and I've I've been talking to a lot of people preparing for my interview with you and I wanted to run sort of their thoughts by you and get your comments and insights. I mean, the first thing, and, and it sort of picks up on what you were just saying is, you know, step one is simply to signal as an investor that you are interested in investing in the, in this community. Yeah. So there are, there are lots of things that can be done. And um, one of those things that uh, we see working quite well is uh, venture capital firms hosting office hours for founders, which sort of eliminates the need for a warm introduction if founders are able to go directly to these networks and yeah. beyond office hours which you know I've had feedback from founders in our network can feel uh, quite empty um, I've also seen uh, investors increasingly offering to provide substantial feedback on pitch decks to founders as well so what, those are kinds of meaningful some of the feedback people said some of the events seem quite empty and sort of lacking in content or Yes, it's just if you've got a 30 minute Zoom call with um, oh, a VC to go to your deck, there's only so much that can be done in that time. Yeah. However, if yeah. you can, you know, take that time to really go through a deck and provide meaningful feedback, that goes a long way. So, one of the issues that I found when I was looking at this issue when I was doing it in, in film, one of the sort of pathetic excuses, to put it very bluntly, uh, was, you know, TV executives would say, well, you know, where am I going to find my uh, producer or my uh, commissioning editor? I mean, presumably you wouldn't accept that excuse from VCs without wishing to encourage you to be rude to them. There are <laughs> plenty of people out there that they could hire. There are plenty of people and beyond that, there's there's a piece that needs to happen and, you know, not to bang on about it too much, but I always talk about building the pipeline. Um, it's, it's one thing to focus on people who have, through all of their hard work, managed to get to the point already where they're able to 
go into senior decision making roles um, within VC, but there is a huge pipeline problem in that we are not investing in enough programs to either fast track or support people who are looking into this space. And there are newer programs like Future VC, Included VC, who are offering fellowships um, to people who want to get their foot into the industry but it's notoriously difficult and I think just like raising investment it can be overly determined by who you know where you went to school and who your parents are so there is work that needs to be done in building the pipeline one and two actually going out to a more diverse pool of candidates when they are recruiting in for roles. And presumably VC should also be doing better research on new markets, new markets that they're simply not investing in and don't know about. Absolutely, 100%. And, you know, we, we see some really interesting businesses who are sort of coming into the ecosystem at the moment, run by diverse founders. And so, um, you know, you look at Ada Ventures, for example, um, a VC that, that focuses on pre-seed startups, raised 32 million round. They are investing in overlooked businesses exclusively and their pipeline is very strong. And so we see that they, there are businesses there who just haven't been able to get the kind of investment they need to scale their ventures. But once they are able to secure that funding, have huge potential to grow. So, yes, definitely a piece around, um, you know, increasingly educating uh, VCs on the different opportunities available and how to find them. So here's an issue that does get people uh, going. Um, and I'd love your thoughts on it, I have thoughts on it as well, but what about if, if you're running a VC fund and you said, I'm gonna set myself a target that a certain percentage of my investment is gonna go into uh, companies run by diverse founders, is that a, something you would encourage? Hmm. Um, I, I think that's a good step forward in that it signals a strong commitment i think my hesitation comes from the potential for tokenism in an approach like that and if we yeah. move more towards um a kind of thesis of investing in the best founders but casting the net even wider then there may be um you know more of an opportunity and for it to feel less um uh, like an affirmative action piece, um, so to speak. So it's, I think, I think there is more work to be done, and maybe uh, sort of carving out funding for diverse founders is one thing, but it needs to come amongst a host of other um, other things that are done, including increasing unconscious bias education amongst VCs, including uh, recruiting in for more diverse um, people within VCs, and all those other things we've been talking about as well. In fact, my next question was going to be about unconscious bias training. How important, you know, giving you back your magic wand, having sorted out vice chancellors and um, education ministers, would you say that, you know, a good, a good VC firm that wanted to make progress in this area really should invest in unconscious bias training? And tell us a bit about what that involves as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if if a firm is actually serious about making a change, um, I feel like understanding bias and how it works is one of those things. And, you know, we had the Black Lives Matter process recently and it, it sparked a whole conversation in our society about, you know, the bias that we have within all of us and all of us have biases that have been 
built in over years through sort of stereotypes and experiences that we've had and um, too often we're blind to them and that's why you get people saying things like I don't see colour and I'm colourblind which is one of those things that makes me cringe um, because you <laughs> cannot you, you just simply can't not see colour in, in an environment in which we have institutional racism we have uh, biases that affect how people of colour navigate spaces every day and to not see colour is actually probably quite dangerous in that you are ignoring the lived experience of the people that you are speaking to and engaging with. And so unconscious bias training is really about understanding um, how difficult it is to make truly objective decisions about individuals, um, especially when they're coming from backgrounds different from your own. It's understanding how you may have blind spots due to your own privilege and it's understanding the common types of bias that we see in workplaces that are perpetuated through our society in various ways as well. And what about uh, in our sort of fancy venture capital firm as it were, is there more, is there also an opportunity to work with the firms that you've already invested in? If you were looking at your portfolio now and deciding, hopefully, maybe even listening to this podcast and deciding it's really something you've got to step up to the plate. Is there more that they could do with companies they've already invested in, going back to those companies and saying, what are you doing about your management team in terms of diversity and that kind of thing? Absolutely. Um, so I'll, I'll be running a session in a couple of weeks' time for um, Santander universities about uh, for early startup founders who are who don't even have a team yet to help them understand what purposeful leadership means, what inclusive leadership means. And I think that as a startup founder, we get this thing where we have, you know, a startup, we have an idea, we get our friends on board and then we get a bit of money and then we've got suddenly a team of 30 and we look around and we're like, oh gosh, um, they all look like me. Yeah. And then we do that, that kind of knee jerk reaction of let's hire in a diversity and inclusion manager. And that is just not the way to do it. And I think if we build in the kind of training we're talking about from the very beginning, and yes, VCs can encourage that in their portfolio companies, we might see organisations starting to build that have diversity at their heart and have a commitment to inclusion in everything they do from setting up their board, from recruiting and from all the policies they write internally as well. So we should root that in from the very beginning. So uh we've talked about kind of education we've talked about some of the practical steps that vcs and funders can do to make a difference i'd love to now kind of pivot a bit and talk about the tech scene and the diverse tech scene is are there kind of uh putting you slightly on the spot here but are there kind of standout startups as it were that you can point us to that you've helped on your own journey or that you've seen that are uh kind of proof of the thesis uh that there are companies out there who are, are really kind of knocking it out of the park in the and also you're uh in the uk i want to talk about africa in a minute as well yeah sure so in the uk we've definitely had some interesting um companies sort of come through our programs in various ways um founders sort of speaking at our events or kind of being coached through our programs and uh, we're just about to launch a three-month program with Barclays Ventures to support black founders as well and what we see is uh, interestingly what we see is companies who 
are not really looking at VC, they are looking at angel networks. And I always think about the fact that when you are starting up, you know, you always think about that family and friends round. And if you come from a background where you don't necessarily have family and friends who have 20 grand in their back pockets, um, that can be uh, very hard. And so often uh, diverse founders, I think, are more likely potentially to look into angel investment um, as as an alternative and maybe not even get to the point where they do seek VC funding. And we've had some really interesting companies um, in our wider community who have done fantastic things. Um, one is um, a company called um, Business School, who uh, took part in two of our programs and uh, came on our programs, met a mentor on one of them and ended up joining um, the last Y Combinator cohort uh, to take that business to the next level, um, there's a brilliant company called. What, what, what is that? What does that? What does that business do? Uh, so they are like a clear score, but for businesses, for SMEs. Right. Right. Yeah, and so that 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 was a really interesting idea that was built on one of our programs. Um, there's another company called Trimit, who are a kind of uh, a mobile barber who go around London, kind of giving uh, sort of uh, delivering kind of haircuts and. We found that particularly due to COVID-19, they've been busier than ever. Um, and they've, you know, they've recently sort of raised their second round of funding. And so those are the kinds of ideas going back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, if you didn't know about the the, the black hair care market and the market for, and, you know, cuts for um, men of colour or that kind of thing, it just wouldn't be on your radar. But there's a huge kind of market for stuff like that. And we see hair care companies and, um, you know, companies that focus on uh, supporting people with different kind of uh, health conditions and providing access to services who are doing quite well at the moment. Um, and that's all from people realising uh, that there are really, really good ideas out there that just need a bit of support in order to grow. Brilliant. And you're in Ghana at the moment. Um, uh, and you've been there, I think, for a few, few months now. I mean, what's the tech scene like? It's a very big question. Uh, to say for the whole of Africa, but are there any particular kind of countries or companies that kind of stand out to you as you kind of immerse yourself? Yeah, so uh, Africa, you know, you're right, it's very um, difficult to be so broad when you're talking about an entire continent, but there are some really, really exciting uh, things happening in the tech space here in Ghana. Um, Ghana has one of the most interesting and um you know a scene that's filled with opportunity and there are companies who are innovating in quite a few spaces i think uh notably agritech is a big sector here so how can we actually um increase uh, access to uh knowledge and access to support for you know farmers uh, where sort of agriculture is a big part of the economy um, we're seeing a, a big shift in terms of fintech as well. Companies who are looking into how to uh, sort of make payments uh, transfer across different a African countries more effectively, um, who are looking to increase the speed and reduce the cost of remittances from people who are outside of the country um, bringing money in. Um, a great friend of mine has just launched a company called Weka which is um, a platform that allows anyone in the African diaspora to invest in uh, African startups um, for as little as you feel comfortable with. 
And it's a great way of reimagining how we remit back to the continent um, in light of millennials thinking about ways that they can invest in a more in a more um, uh, in a way that's kind of just a bit different from our parents, for example. And so seeing more companies like that, there's also um, increasing uh, interest in sort of ed tech as a sector. The education system here is, um, uh, how do I say, there are a lot of young people who still don't have access to basic education and who struggle. And so there's a lot more innovation, you can say, that can take place here. And there are companies who are uh, looking, for example, into how uh, courses can be delivered through mobile exclusively, through text message orally for people who don't have access to internet connections as steadily. So edtech, fintech, agrotech, those are big sectors. Health tech is another one. Um, but it's it's a really exciting time, I think, to be an entrepreneur here. But the scene is mired by a lot of challenge when it comes to funding. And uh, African VCs are, African VCs, sorry, African founders are routinely underinvested in. And so you get this this point where a lot of founders have um, a lot of non-financial support when they're starting up and when they've got a business that has a bit of traction and they need capital in order to take their businesses to the next level that's often lacking and much of that support comes from uh, the US it comes from Europe and therefore you need to be connected in order to be able to access that kind of funding which is unfortunate for many founders. Yeah presumably there aren't any US or European VCs with kind of funds established in Africa? There are, there are, there are many. Um, but the, the challenge that we have, for example, a few years ago, there was a kind of hashtag going around Kenya, um, you know, why is Kenya VC so white? And there was this kind of uh, peculiar situation in that most of the companies that were raising funding over a million in Kenya had either white founders or white co-founders. And we had a situation in which there is um, you know, there was a kind of routine uh, discrimination of sort of all African founding teams who were fundraising in Africa. There are definitely VCs who are interested in Africa and see the opportunity. But, you know, we were talking about warm introductions before. We were talking about feeling comfortable around who you know and who you feel like you can identify with. That kind of implicit bias is definitely present in the Africa VC space. Um, on top of that, I I was in uh, San Francisco uh, a year ago. And I remember speaking to African founders out there who talked about the the racism that exists. You know, the assumption that they would take the funding themselves and put it in their back pocket, or that they wouldn't be um, able to manage the kind of funding they were raising, whether that was a sort of uh, you know five million, ten million round and uh, that, that's still very, very prevalent. So we have a long way to go in terms of increasing equity within the VC space out here. Um, and I guess one of the sort of paradoxes, if you're a tech uh, investor, is that, you know, Africa often makes the leap, you know, it went, as it were, straight to mobile, partly because of poor legacy uh, fixed telecoms in infrastructure. And some mm -hmm. of the sectors you've talked about, like education and health, presumably there's much more chance of starting a kind of startup in those spaces which would be adopted much more quickly in some African countries than it might in uh, other countries. 
Absolutely, absolutely. We see some really interesting startups. Um, Zipline, for example, have done incredibly well. They are they're a company who um, allow sort of blood to be um, flown via drones to places where they're oh, needed. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I've heard of them. yeah. Yeah, so there's there's quite really interesting innovation happening um, to improve access to healthcare, improve access to education. Um, however. Uh, there are there are still the same challenges that we've discussed in terms of access to funding, um, access to the kind of advice and the networks you need to really scale once you're kind of early traction and you need some serious capital in order to take the business to the next level. And so founders are increasingly looking outside of the continent for that kind of funding. And, you know, if you're in if you're in the US, if you're in the UK, you, you tend to find a lot of African funders who are looking to raise outside of the continent knowing the challenges that are faced inside the continent. Uh, brilliant. Well, look, Izzy, thank you so much for spending so much time with me. And um, we uh, haven't actually met. I read about you in a tech newsletter that I read called Sifted, which is done by a team from the Financial Times. And um, yes. I thought it'd be fascinating uh, to talk to you about this subject. And it has been absolutely brilliant and really insightful. And I really hope... Um, that lots of people listen to this and take uh, lessons and advice from it. And even more importantly, get in touch with you uh, to get direct advice and also support uh, the amazing programs that you're doing to make a difference. So I really appreciate it. And um, thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media.